Hey gagglers, it's Yvonne. Look, I'm going to be real with you. We've been a little down over here because while we see that our listeners are super loyal and keep coming back each week, we haven't heard from you guys in a while. So consider this me begging. Please rate and review our show on your podcast app. Be it good or bad, we want to know how to make this show more interesting and more relevant for you. So give us some feedback. All right, on to the show. Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. Ron Hansen, my co-host and fellow national political reporter, is out on vacation. Michael Squires, our investigative editor and former Gaggle host, is filling in for him. Today we're coming at you with yet another episode featuring a Democratic presidential candidate. Since last Wednesday, we released two bonus episodes, one with Vice President Mike Pence and one with Montana Governor and Democratic presidential candidate Steve Bullock. A few months back, we spoke with Julian Castro. I recommend you scroll back and listen to those. Today, we're talking to Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke is a Democrat from Texas. He's an El Paso congressman. He's been in Congress as long as Cruz has, six years in the House. He shot to political superstardom after his 2018 Senate run against Senator Ted Cruz. Well, the Senate race in Texas is gaining national attention ahead of He ended up losing, but he gave Cruz a run for his money. CBS News projects that Senator Ted Cruz has won. Tonight's loss does nothing to diminish the way that I feel about Texas or this country. Before he made headlines for his Senate run, he served on the city council of his hometown in El Paso. Then he was elected to Congress where he served for three terms. As a presidential candidate, he's still polling in the bottom tier. He's best known these days for suspending his campaign to return home after the mass shootings in El Paso. We do not yet know the firearms that were used or how they acquired them, but we do know this is up and for vowing on the debate stage to take away everyone's assault weapons. Hell yes, we're gonna take your AR-15, your AK-47. He stopped in Phoenix and Tucson recently in hopes of capturing the energy that made him a household name last year. Congressman, thank you so much for joining The Gaggle and the Arizona Republican AZCentral.com. What is your big pitch as you make your way through Arizona uh, to win the Democratic nomination for president? This is our moment of truth as a country. Everything that you could possibly care about is going to be decided in this election. Uh, ensuring that everyone is well enough to be able to pursue their, their passion and their potential because we have universal access to health care. Um, getting the guns off the streets that are taking the lives of our fellow Americans in a country that loses 40,000 to gun violence every year. Confronting climate change before it is too late with the 10 years within which we have to act. All of this will require not half measures or half steps, but half the country, but all of us doing everything that we can. And in my candidacy, in this campaign, and in my administration, we're gonna bring everyone in. And we say, no me importa, do not care who you voted for last time, where you live, to whom you pray, who you love, the differences before us will not divide us at this moment of truth. So I'm gonna bring this country together at a very divided moment to make sure that we confront the greatest set of challenges that we've ever known and are defined by our ambitions, our aspirations, and our ability to achieve them. In 2018, Democrat Kirsten Sinema won 
the Senate seat, the first for a Democrat in 30 years. She did it with a very moderate, conservative message. How does your message, which is much more progressive, win Arizona? I think my message is reflective of what people are thinking about right now. I mean, I don't know a Republican or a Democrat who thinks it's okay that we lose 40,000 people to gun violence in this country or that our kids go to school afraid and prepared to try to evade an active shooter. They want to see us adopt universal background checks in the sale of weapons of war, but a majority of Americans now want to see mandatory buybacks of those AR-15s and AK-47s. I don't know where it is on the spectrum to want to have universal guaranteed high quality health care so that you don't have to get arrested to see a mental health care provider. In fact, the county jail system in Texas and in many of our states is the largest provider of mental health care services. It is both morally the right thing to do to have guaranteed universal health care and financially, fiscally, economically, it's the most responsible position we can take. So I think the old right-left political spectrum no longer works or serves or reflects the interests that we have in this country. I'm going to go beyond that and just listen to people and reflect their priorities. So we have spent a lot of time listening to people this cycle already and healthcare is the number one issue so far. People are sharing their stories of how difficult it is navigating a very complex system, paying for kidney dialysis, for you know having babies, hospital uh, stays that are unexpected. How will you break through on this issue in a meaningful way to ensure or assure families that you actually can do something on this front? This is what we're going to do. Everyone who does not have insurance today, tens of millions of our fellow Americans under my administration will be enrolled in Medicare. Those who are insufficiently insured, and I'm meeting a lot of them, they literally cannot afford the medications because they don't have the money to provide the copay. So they have insurance, but they don't have guaranteed care. They're enrolled in Medicare. But those who have employer-sponsored insurance, uh, members of unions who fought for employer-sponsored insurance plans that work for them and their families, they're able to keep them and we preserve choice while getting to universal guaranteed care in America. And what that means is you no longer have to worry or scramble for that copay or worry about being able to see a doctor or take your child to a therapist at all. You just know that you can do it and you can therefore focus on the things that should be truly important to you. Finishing school, going to work, starting a business, raising your family. Whatever you're here on this planet right now to do, I want you to be well enough to be able to do it. So that's how we break through. And that's neither a right nor left, Republican nor Democrat. That's an American value. And I want to make sure that I bring all Americans in into this solution. The president is facing an impeachment inquiry in the House over his alleged efforts to pressure Ukraine officials to provide him with damaging information on your rival, uh, Joe Biden and his son. How do you persuade the American people to look at this issue based on facts, not political persuasion? Yeah. I don't think it's up to anybody to persuade anyone on an issue as important as impeachment. It is the option of last resort for holding a president accountable. But the founding fathers envisioned just this kind of challenge, that we would have a president of our country using a position of public trust to try to get the help of a foreign leader to involve themselves in our elections. It is clear that President Trump has done that, both with President Zelensky of the Ukraine. We now have the reconstructed call transcript that proves that. But he also did it in broad daylight uh, just last week with China, asking them to dig up dirt and then holding out 
the possibility of ending the trade war and the tariffs we've imposed on China in some kind of quid pro quo for them doing the president's dirty work. There's nothing about committing these crimes out in the open that makes them any less criminal. And here's the challenge for Americans, Republicans, independents, and Democrats alike. If we allow this to stand without accountability, we will have set the precedent that some people are above the law in this country. And the moment that we accept that is the moment that we lose this democracy for everyone. So this is a moment where we ask everyone to put country before party, country before their own political careers, and do the right thing while we still have time to do the right thing. How has the Trump presidency, including this most recent episode, affect our standing with our foreign allies? Donald Trump has diminished the standing of America all over the world. A standing that, that was fought for, sacrificed for by countless young men and women who literally put their lives on the line, in some cases lost their lives for America and the other Western democracies. In one single administration, he's almost squandered all that, turned his back on NATO, the European Union, Canada and Mexico to embrace thugs and dictators like Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un in North Korea, Korea or al-Sisi in Egypt or Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia um, at a moment that the open question in the world is whether the future is author authoritarian or democracy. Um, the president is choosing authoritarian while student protesters in Hong Kong are showing the rest of the world the leadership that we should be able to provide right now. So we once again have to stand up for democracy, stand up for our values, make sure that we don't go to war everywhere around the world to resolve our foreign policy differences, but convene the other powers of the planet, both to ensure that we don't go to war and also to pursue our priorities like confronting climate change before it is too late. That's what I want to do when I'm president of the United States. You are in favor of taking assault weapons away from Americans as a way to stop mass shootings. What do you say to voters, particularly those here in Arizona, who would be wary of any plan like this? An AR-15, an AK-47, the assault weapons that you're asking about, were designed, engineered, they were sold to the militaries of the world specifically for the purpose of killing people on a battlefield. And they are devastatingly effective at doing that. When those weapons are turned against us in our classrooms, in, all, in our Walmarts, in our synagogues, in our churches, in our public life, we have no defense. And, and those high impact, high velocity rounds shred the insides of every victim that is shot. And we've lost so many lives because we have failed to muster the political courage to do the right thing. So, so what I say to those owners of AR-15s and AK-47s, they know this better than I do. You don't need that weapon to hunt. You don't need it for self-defense in your home. It, it is exclusively designed for use on a battlefield. So sell that back to the government, keep your shotgun, keep your hunting rifle, keep your, your, your handgun to protect yourself in your home. Nothing that, that takes away your Second Amendment rights or the guns that you should be able to legitimately own. But no one should have a weapon of war in their homes, especially when they are so often used against us in our lives. Does your proposal make it difficult for Democrats to do anything meaningful on this issue? Some, some would say it, it, it does. Tell me what Democrats or Republicans have done that's meaningful in the last 30 years on gun violence. Every single year we see more people being killed by firearms. We don't even have universal background checks. We haven't closed all the loopholes that are open. So, so this waiting game, which has really been designed by the NRA, 
and those uh, who are complicit in both the silence and the inaction and frankly the deaths that are taking place. They're, they're allies in Congress that they bought and paid for. They've set the terms of the debate so far and that debate has produced precisely nothing. So I say it's time to change the rules and to be intellectually honest about what is killing our fellow Americans. The fact that we have more than 390 million firearms in a country of 329 million people. More guns than there are people and many of those guns, more than 10 million of them, designed exclusively for the purpose of killing people. Not to hunt, not for self-defense. So I want to make sure because I have a responsibility to those who have been shot, to those who have lost a loved one, to those who fear that in their lives, to do the right thing while I have a chance to do the right thing. And so that's why we've proposed the most ambitious agenda to save lives and end the epidemic of gun violence in America. In light of the falling numbers uh, of entries uh, from Mexico into the United States, is the urgency on border security and border wall and illegal immigration as urgent as President Trump would have, would, would like us to believe that it is? You know, I think Arizona and my home state of Texas have a unique important, essential perspective on this. We are border states. We understand the U.S.-Mexico border, and we can tell the rest of the country this is nothing to be afraid of, nothing to fear. In fact, everything to celebrate and show as an example to the rest of the country. My hometown of El Paso, Texas, one of, if not the safest cities in America, not despite, but because it's a city of immigrants and the sons and daughters of immigrants. Their very presence makes us more successful, makes us stronger, makes us safer than we otherwise would have been. So no, we don't need walls, which have produced suffering and have produced death. Thousands of immigrants seeking to join family or work jobs or flee persecution have died as we built more walls, pushing them further out into the most inhospitable stretches of the U.S.-Mexico border. We don't need cages in which we have placed kids. We need to acknowledge that we've lost the lives of seven children, defenseless, vulnerable, desperate, who showed up with absolutely nothing and who died on our watch in the most powerful, the wealthiest country on the face of the planet. And we also have to acknowledge, and Arizona and Texas know this especially well, that, that immigrants add far more than they are ever able to take. And if we will legalize their presence in this country, they will contribute even more than they already have. So a golden opportunity for America to realize its potential and to make sure that this great country is even greater. Final question. Uh, Republicans have been coming in and out of Arizona talking a lot recently about the contributions that Latinos have made economically to the state and to our country. The economy is doing really well. Why change that? Who is the economy doing well for? Last year, wages in America increased by 0.5%. And that's after a $2 trillion tax cut that went to the very wealthiest, that went to corporations that were already sitting on record piles of cash. Those same corporations took that windfall and bought stock back from their investors instead of paying their employees more. So if we really want this economy to work for everyone, then we're going to be serious about a minimum wage that's a living wage, $15 as the floor, universal guaranteed high quality health care for every single American, paid family leave, ending discrimination in the workplace. In some states, it's still legal, though it is not okay to fire someone for being gay 
In many states, perhaps all of them, women are being paid a fraction of what men are being paid. Latinas being paid 53 cents on the dollar for what a white man in America makes today. So yes, we have a, an amazing economy, but it is amazing for a minority of our fellow Americans. We need to make it amazing and great for everyone. As president, I will. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll let you get into the hundreds of people there who are waiting for you, and we'll catch up with you your next trip uh, here, hopefully. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. All right, listeners, let's dive into afterthoughts. Squires, what does O'Rourke's campaign pitch tell us about how he's trying to set himself apart from not just Republicans, but also his rivals in the Democratic field? Well, it's easier to see how he's trying to differentiate himself from Republicans. For one thing, he's talking about issues that they don't really talk about, health care, uh, guns and climate change. Those are like three of his big, uh, big issues. And then he talks about bringing everybody in. And this is uh, a knock on some of the anti-immigrant rhetoric that we we uh, hear from Republicans, in particular President Trump. Um, and you know, even one of the Republicans in the House, Will Hurd, who represents uh, the bo- part of the border that Beto used to represent when he was in Congress, um, is not running for re-election and kind of cited that, cited that as a reason. is like, this isn't the same big tent party that I joined. Uh, he's African-American, which is notable. He's the only uh, black Republican in the House or is. So I, I think it's easy to see what he's go- where he's going on the Republican side. Um, seeing how he differentiates himself from other Democrats, a little tougher. Um, I think the one thing he said that really stands out to people is the, uh, we're going to take your assault rifle away from you. Uh, if you asked any Republican what they know about Beto, that would probably be the one thing. And even some of O'Rourke's supporters who were at his event in Phoenix said, hey, I'm, I'm here to support him, but I do feel like he kind of crossed the line with that comment. Basically, he shot himself in the foot, and he lost a huge voting base there. He like, totally tanked any chance that he might have had um, of even winning me over. Uh, while I personally own an you know, AR-15, I own multiple guns, it's not the tell-all, be-all. Like, I can live without my AR-15, but he lost a lot, good bit of voters like that. And so it was, it was really interesting to see him kind of double down on that message. How do you think that pledge plays in a state like Arizona, where guns obviously are woven into the, into the fabric of our culture here? Well, I used to cover Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, and part of his reelection rite of passage was Harry get his old squirrel gun out and head to the range for the reporters to take pictures of him as he shot and, you know... <laughs> showed how gun-friendly he was. And, you know, here he was, the leader of the Democrats in the Senate at the time. Um, so this is a departure from that. Um, how, does, how it plays out, I mean, I think it's kind of difficult to see how it plays out well for him. Um, I've thought about it in a personal way. I'm not a Democrat, but I do own an AR-15, which would be one of the guns that he wants to take. And, you know, there's a bit of a story. My dad was uh, a marksman for years. He shot competitively. We were never hunters or anything, but he shot it as a sport. And uh, I would go out with him. I have great memories of us going out to, uh, it was Black Canyon Shooting Range. It's now Ben Avery. You know, spending hours out there, you know, pulling targets and things. So, like, if, if uh, you know, under his proposal, I don't know how it would work, but I've thought, gee, you know, would I turn my gun over? You know, clearly I'm not going to do anything untoward with my gun. So is there a greater good in me handing mine over? I think a lot of people have sort of that same 
way of looking at it where they're like, you know, I, I have one because I like it because it's fun or whatever, you know, and, you know, why should I give it up? It's the, you know, the people who are mentally unstable or, you know, whatever that should give up their guns. We talked to one voter, I think his name was Jeremiah Cole from Glendale, and he also uh, owned an assault weapon. And he was like, look, like, I don't have a problem giving up my guns, but why would you ask me to do that? Like, I think that we definitely need to do something about guns, but saying I'm going to ban something outright is not going to help whatsoever. Because that just encourages people to go hoard weapons. You know? there was, there's something about that that really rubs even some of his supporters the wrong way. Yeah, because I think if you look at the issue broadly, it's it's in the 80 percentage, you know, 85 percent of Americans say, yeah, we need more gun control. But if you immediately go to kind of sort of the most extreme version of that and say, we're going to go out and seize the guns, then you you almost, you, well, you definitely risk provoking more of a backlash than a sort of bipartisan big tent solution that Beto himself is saying he wants. He also had some big ideas on climate change, on income equality, on access to uh, health care. How do you realistically implement those kinds of policies? I mean, he seems to talk a big game, but how do you get there? Well, yeah, it's kind of the same. It, it, it is sort of the same issue where, I mean, all of those are such big issues. They're, that's why they've been debated for so long. But they will all require some sort of bipartisan solution unless you know, the Democrats come through with some sort of victory that we don't foresee now in the Senate. Uh, so, yeah, you do kind of wonder what what stands between here and, and there. But, you know, I mean, I, I think candidates are always overpromising. And it remains to be seen how much voters hold them accountable for sort of the, the pie-in-the-sky promises they make. Um, in some cases, they don't. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to this week's show. Today's episode was produced by the best people in the world, Katie O'Connell and Taylor Seeley. Special thanks to videographer Tom Tingle, who made setup and breakdown for this interview a breeze, even though it was scorching outside. We'll see you next week.